but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. You do so clearly. And we live in a time where we have access to it in our own language. Not just from the mouth of a priest or some specialist who's the only one who can bring it to us, but we have Bibles in our hands and on our phones. We have access to your word always. Father, I pray that you would help us to take advantage of that access that we have. Thank you that you have told us about who you are. You've told us about who we are and how we can know you. Thank you that you communicate to us. You have not left us in the dark. So many people live in the dark, not knowing your word, not knowing what is true. And even many Christians live as though they did not have your word. Father, I pray that we would not be those people. I pray that we would access your word. I pray that we would love to read and understand what you have said to us, that we, in fact, would be guided, that our life would be founded upon, our decisions founded upon your word. And so we thank you for this opportunity that we have on a Sunday morning where we get to open your word and we get to talk about it freely. We don't, we're not afraid of, of uh, the government uh, cracking down on us or someone taking our Bibles away or getting in trouble because we have Bibles or any of those things. We have great, great freedom, and I pray that you would help us to take advantage of those freedoms. I pray that you would work this morning in the proclamation of your word, that you would speak to us that we would hear from you, from your word. That we would know it for true. We would be obedient to it. That we would believe what we read in it. Foundational truths indeed. So Father, I ask for your blessing on our time. Help us to learn well. Help us to grow in Christ as a result of this time. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've made it all the way to chapter 4. And Paul has been talking for the last couple of paragraphs already about justification by faith. And he just keeps hitting on that topic. He wants to flesh out different aspects of it, different parts of it, different pieces, so that we will understand how it relates to various things. And of course, it's important for us to remember also that 
the book of Romans is built heavily on this doctrine, explaining what this doctrine means, and then fleshing out later on how it applies practically in our own lives. There, there are chapters of application where the imperatives come, where the commands come, but we're not there yet. You read for a long time in the book of Romans before you start getting to the commands, the instructions on therefore how we should live. That's because Paul knows that there are a lot of things we need to understand, that we need to know are true before we begin to act, before we begin to determine how we are going to act, because our actions and our decisions and our application has to be based upon what is true. Otherwise, it's just us deciding to do stuff. And we're Christians. We don't just decide to do stuff. Instead, we read what God says, we understand what God says, and then we make application. And so today we're going to be talking about another passage that's about indicatives, telling us things that are true, statements of fact, not imperatives. Imperatives are the commands. We're reading an indicative section. We're reading a section that tells us what is true, but... There is always application once we understand what is true. We, very often, when we're doing personal Bible study, maybe you're reading the Bible on your own, maybe you're doing it with a small group or a connect group or something like that, we very often read a passage and, and, and want to apply it right away. We read it and we say, okay, what does this mean I should do? Well, that's a good impulse. That's a good impulse because it's saying we want to obey God's Word. That's a good thing. And uh, we do want to be obedient to God's Word. But there's a step missing. There are a couple of steps missing. We talk about very simple Bible study. We talk about observing what is in the text. Observation. We have to note what is there. Well, Jesus said this, and then He did this, and, and these things happened. So it's observation, it's observing the facts of what, what's there. But then the next step, we often want it to be application. But if we apply after we've only observed, we might very easily misapply. And I think very, very often that's what happens is that we read it, we understand what's there, we understand those facts, and therefore we want to apply them immediately to our lives, having skipped the crucial middle step, which is interpretation. And if we don't interpret what the text means, if we don't correctly, accurately interpret what the text means, we can very easily misapply. We can actually do something thinking God told us to do it because I read it in God's Word, but if we've misinterpreted it, if we've not interpreted it, we can actually do something that God never said to do. We can make an application He never intended. And so when we read through the Bible and when we study through the Bible, we need to be careful to observe what is there and then understand what the thing that's there means, how it fits in with the rest of the book, what's going on, what is God trying to communicate to us. And once we understand that, and by the way, that can take a lot of work, that's part of the reason sermons are so long is because we're trying to explain how to interpret what is the correct interpretation of this thing. Now, once we understand what it really means, now applying it to my life is a much shorter step and it's on sure ground. And so this morning, as we come to chapter 4, we're going to do those things. We're going to observe what's here. We're going to interpret. And we're going to talk today about some uh, misinterpretations. 
from different passages, particularly James chapter 2 as it interacts with this passage. But let's get to Romans chapter 4 and, and see where we're going. First of all, what do we learn from Abraham? Right, Paul has been talking all the way, the last couple of paragraphs in chapter 3, he's been talking about justification by faith. He's been arguing very strenuously for it. He's been saying that no one is justified by works, uh, but only justified by faith. He's made some very strong comments. Well, the question is, what about Abraham? How was he justified? Verse 1 gets the conversation started for us. What then, shall we say, by, was gained by Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh. Okay, Paul has been saying very strong things about justification by faith, that the way we are declared righteous before God is through faith in Christ. And then righteousness is given to us. Righteousness is applied to our account. What about Abraham? The first century Jews held Abraham in high esteem. Very, very high esteem. We should hold Abraham in high esteem. They held him in very, very high esteem. They, uh, they, they had such a high opinion of him that you might not believe it unless I quoted some things. He, he was held to be their very greatest example of faithfulness in all of history. The greatest example of faithfulness. One ancient Jewish writing tells us, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Those are bold words. Bold words to say about Abraham. Another one testifies, no one has been found like him in glory. Some actually taught that he obeyed the law perfectly before the law was even given. So Abraham is the father of faith. He's the father of the faithful. He's held in very, very high esteem. And so Paul, who's a first century Jew, writing in this context of a bunch of first century Jews receiving what he's written, they're hearing what he's saying about no one being justified by works, but only by faith alone. And they're saying, whoa, whoa, I've read some other things about Abraham. So how was Abraham justified? In other words, does he disprove Paul's doctrine. Does Abraham, is he, a, is he an example that, that, that would derail Paul's argument from the things that Paul has said so strongly? I mean, Paul, after all, had said no human being will be justified in his sight by works. He said that no one, he, he, he has said in 328 that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so you can see if you're a first century Jewish reader, You've read all these things Paul said, and you thought, wow, that sounds great, but what about Abraham? Does he disprove Paul's doctrine? Well, is that going to cause a problem for Paul? Well, we'll see Paul deal with it, but the, the greater question is, what does Scripture say about the topic? How does Scripture line up in this argumentation? And so we're going to see Paul develop that. He's going to quote from Genesis about Abraham, and then he's going to go on and quote uh, from David as well. But there's a point of application before we take another step, that when we come to challenges to our own beliefs, like these first century Jews would have had challenges to their own beliefs from what Paul was saying, 
And they said, ah, it doesn't seem to line up, Paul. When we have challenges to our own beliefs, how will we resolve those? How will we determine what's right? Well, Scripture would have us go to Scripture to find out what is right and what is true, to understand what actually is God's truth on this topic. When we're confronted with a belief that's different from the one that we hold, we have to determine what is right based not upon my own tradition, not upon what I've always believed, what I've always been told, based upon what God's Word says. It may be you might, for example, have Uh, You might be facing a situation. Maybe your marriage is in difficulty or maybe you've got a friend or family member whose marriage is in difficulty and you're thinking, well, I I, I know what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage and those things and and I have a very strong opinion. I really, really think this is the case on that topic. Well, the Bible may or may not agree with you regardless of how strong a view you have on the topic, regardless of how many times you've been taught that, regardless of how long you've thought it and the solution to that question or any other question that comes up is the biblical standard to go to the Bible. And this seems very obvious to say, you know, it's kind of like I'm preaching to the choir here. It seems very obvious, but it's not. Very often when we're challenged in a a belief or a, a conviction or something in our own life, we don't respond by explaining from God's Word. We don't respond by going to God's Word to understand what it says. Instead, we respond by what I've always been taught. What I've always believed, what I've always heard, that's called tradition. Now, your tradition may 100% be right, but you've got to test it by the authority of Scripture. And that's what Paul does right here. So, just how was Abraham counted righteous? We continue reading in verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Were Abraham's works counted as righteousness? But not before God, he says. For what does the scripture say in verse 3? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham raises a, a concern, raises the question about someone being justified by works. Were his works, point A, counted as righteousness? Well, the person that Paul's in discussion with might might have been tempted to think so. And actually, if you'll turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, you'll hear a similar discussion, perhaps. You'll hear the words that sound similar, though the basis of the conversation is different. What's really being discussed is something different. Turn to James chapter 2. After all, James seems to teach that justification is by works. Not by faith. In fact, he's going to say in James chapter 2 and verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I just quoted a couple of places from Paul where he talked about justification by faith, not by works. So what's going on? How are we to reconcile James 2.24 and Romans 3.28? It said we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we've got what seems to be a contradiction. What seems to be a contradiction in our text. James says one thing and Romans says something different. Well, how do we understand that? Well, there have been some people who have called into question maybe that uh, James isn't really scriptural. 
that uh, James is not really part of the Bible. Well, that, that, that's not the solution. James is part of the Bible. Other people have said, well, this is just evidence, clear evidence of errors in the Bible itself, that there are contradictions and therefore it's a book from man and therefore we can't really trust it and therefore we don't have to hold it as God's Word. And so they've discarded, discredited God's Word in their own minds. So how do we answer this question? Well, first of all, we need to see what question James is answering. And so I'm going to read verses 14 through 25. So this is a couple of paragraphs. Bear with me here. So James speaking from James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was acting along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he goes on to talk about Rahab also. So what question is James addressing? Because he uses the word justified and he actually says justified by works and not by faith alone. That seems to go directly in the face of what Paul is talking about. Well, the question that James is answering, the problem that he's, ad that he's addressing, is a person who says, yeah, I have faith, but there's, there, there, there's no need for me to live that out of my life. There's no, there's no need for me to, to back it up with the things that I do. And so this person, you know, a, a brother or sister in Christ comes to him and they're hungry and they're cold and they're in need. And the person says, be warm, be filled, be gone. And does nothing for them. So they claim to be a Christian. They claim to believe, and yet there's nothing, there's no evidence outwardly speaking that that person really is a Christian. There's no evidence of an inward change of heart that's worked its, its way out into their lives. And so he's saying, you who say you have faith, prove it. Saying you have faith is an internal claim. It's like I could claim to you that I'm thinking about something right now. You have no idea. It's an internal thing. I could claim to you that I have this faith. Yeah, I believe. Well, prove it. Show it. And the way you will show it is by the way you live. And by the way, this is always the case with someone who believes in Christ. Someone who really has been made alive in Christ. They will have evidence. Now, there may not be much evidence. There may be times when you're thinking, I'm looking hard, but I don't see it. But the, the person who has been changed, the person who really has true faith, will have a life that evidences outwardly that faith that they claim to have inwardly. 
And of course, you've, you've run into these people, I'm sure, who would say, uh, yeah, I, I believe. Um, I, I believe. I'm right with God. God knows my heart, so just leave me alone. Don't judge me. What they're saying is, I want to claim that I have faith, and I've got nothing to show for it. I don't, there's no evidence of it in my life. And don't you dare look to see if there is evidence. Don't you expect evidence? And James is saying, no, no. The person who has been justified, the person who truly is right with God, who has been made new in Christ, that person will have a life to show for it. That person will have evidence to some degree in their life. Outward evidence of what is internally true. And so that's why James can say what he does there about a person is justified by works. When he says justified, he means a person gives outward evidence of their internal claim to faith by the works that they do. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Hey, I have faith, I have faith, but I have nothing to show for it. No, what, what makes it clear, what, what shows that that person truly has faith is that that faith has worked its way out in a life of obedience, a life of works, as he put it. And so, works counted as righteousness. We can go back to Romans chapter 4. James is not contradicting him. James is not contradicting him. When he uses the word justified, which, by the way, is the same identical word as is used by Paul in Romans 3 and 4. But he means something different by it. He means something different by it. He means, when he says justified, he means giving outward evidence of the validity of one's faith. And so there's a point of application here for us. True faith will show itself in a changed life perhaps drastically changed, that everyone can say, oh yeah, something's different about that guy. Maybe not always that kind of drastic evidence. But a heart truly changed, true faith, will show itself in a changed life. And so, if what you call faith doesn't work itself out in your life, then you have very good reason to question the nature of your faith. The solution isn't add works on top of your faith and then you'll be good to go. You got a 50%. You got faith, but you need to complete the job by adding works to it. That is not the solution. That is not what James is saying. James is saying true faith will show itself in the outward expression. And so, if you don't have the outward expression, the question isn't how many works do I need to add to that? The question is, is my faith genuine? So you might have legitimate need to ask that question because genuine faith shows itself in a changed life. And by the way, this is the day and age we live in. People will tell you, yeah, I have faith, I'm a Christian. While they're living an entire life that contradicts that. And if you press into that and if you want to say to them, what, but, a, but a Christian doesn't do this and a Christian treats other Christians this way and a Christian, oh no, 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 you, you, you just back off. Don't judge me. I'm right with God. God knows my heart. Well, God does know your heart. He does know that person's heart who claims to have faith and lives directly contrary. And so James's words are important for us to remember. 
True faith will result in outward expressions of that. And sometimes great outward expressions and sometimes not so great. But there will be outward expression. So is our works counted as righteousness? Or secondly, is faith counted as righteousness? Verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What question is Paul addressing? What problem is he, is he answering? He's talking about how a person can become right with God. When he uses the word justified, he's talking about a legal declaration made by God about your case. You have been declared righteous by God because he said so. He made that judgment about you. He has credited that to your account. He's talking about how you go from being an enemy of God, dead in sin, in unbelief, to being a new creature in Christ, righteous before Him, someone who, uh, chapter 5 and verse 1, is going to say has peace with God. How do you go from being on the one side to the other side? That is what he's talking about when he talks about justification. The accreditation to your account, the accrediting to your account of the righteousness of Christ and God, it's there because God said it was. And it happens by faith. God declares you to be righteous before Him by faith. And so Paul draws that, among other places, he draws it from Genesis in this quotation about Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. love how Paul answered that problem by saying, what does the Scripture say? He argued from the Scripture to show that Abraham himself actually was in need of a declaration of righteousness by God. He was in need of peace with God. He was this, and he became this. He was an unbeliever who was separate from God, an enemy of God, to being God's child at peace with him, a new creature, someone who was redeemed. How did that happen? By faith. That happened by faith. So having looked at what the Bible says about Abraham's justification... He turns to the common sense logic of the difference between gift and due. What's the difference between gift and due? Look at verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Genesis fifteen six that Paul had just quoted had said... His faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was a gift. It was given to him. It was something, something given to him. It was alien to him, foreign to him, and it was put in his account. And he says, but the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as his due. I don't know if you remember your first job. I, I grew up on a farm, and I was not a very good farm kid. I'll just say that right now. Not a very good farm kid, though I, I, I didn't mind driving the tractor and doing that kind of stuff, but working with animals, that was tougher or whatever. So but I was lazy. I was not a good farm kid. And I, I, I kind of had a bad attitude about it because I kept, you know, thinking I should get paid for this. I should be getting paid for all this work I'm doing up at 3.30 to, you know, rake hay and all that kind of stuff. I should be getting paid. Well, you don't always when you're, you know, growing up on a farm, right? And I remember the first job I got working for Jack Tedford doing road construction. 16 years old, and I was getting paid. 
And I was getting paid well. I got eight bucks an hour, 1990. Okay, that was pretty good money. So I was excited. And so payday came and I was so thankful, right? I did this work. I, I put in all those hours and I got my paycheck and it was a good paycheck. And I was 16, so anything would have been a good paycheck, right? I was so, so thankful. But it's what I had earned. We had made a deal beforehand. This is what you'll get paid per hour. This is the stuff you'll do. Do this work and you'll get paid, right? It was a deal. So though I was very grateful and though I was excited and though I went and cashed that check and probably did something, you know, silly with it, I don't know. Though I was excited and thankful and grateful, I had earned it. It was mine. It wasn't a gift. I love Jack Tedford to death, but but he didn't give me a gift. (laughs) He paid me. He paid me and I was happy and he was happy. It was a good deal. And what Paul says here is, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And we had just read gift language regarding Abraham. It was counted to him as righteousness. It was given to him. Righteousness was given to him on account of, because of, uh, through the means of his faith. It was given to him. So what that means is he didn't work for it. Because had he worked for it, you couldn't use gift language to talk about the payment. You would use due language. You would use wages, payment for services rendered. The worker earns his wages and the believer doesn't earn his gift. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Genesis 15 uses gift language. And how did he receive that gift according to Genesis 15 that Paul quotes here? By faith. By faith. He believed God. By the way, that's the first time in the Bible the word believe occurs. Genesis 15. And what's it connected with? Justification. Righteousness being credited to his account. From the very beginning of the usage of that word in our Bible, belief has to do with righteousness being credited to Abraham's account. He's declared to be righteous before God. So the question, the application for us is, where is your hope? What are you trusting in for peace with God? Where is your hope? Do you plead your own faithfulness as your ground for hope before God? If you plead your own faithfulness as the ground for your hope with God, you are demanding of God your wages, your due. You're saying, God, you need to pay me because I have been faithful. Pay up. Where is your hope? In that instance, you are a worker. The Bible says there is only hope in recognizing your own lack and your need before God and believing in Him to keep His promise to declare you righteous by faith. That's the only hope the Bible gives us. Maybe you're, you're with us today and you're from a different church. Maybe you have a different church background and maybe some of the stuff we sang was a little weird or the setup is strange or maybe you're some, from some different church background and maybe... Maybe your church background leaned more towards your own contribution. 
Surely you need to contribute to complete the grace of God in your life. God does 99%. You just need to contribute the 1%. That's not the direction the Bible gives us. That's not the teaching the Bible gives us. It doesn't say, yeah, but what about my part? What part do I do? Surely I've got to hold up uh, my end of the deal to have peace with God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so where is your hope? Is your hope in Christ alone? Or is it in your own faithfulness or other things that you've done? If your hope is in your own faithfulness, things that you've done, the ladder you've climbed, the things you've accomplished, whatever else your contribution was, if your hope is in that, then you need to repent of that self-reliance and self-righteousness and you need to put your faith in Christ and trust in Him alone that righteousness would be counted to you as well. So finally, what is this true blessing that David speaks of? He continues in verse 6. He says, just as... So he's already talked about Abraham. By the way, if, if you're going to use an example from the Old Testament to make your argument, Abraham's probably a pretty good example, right? He's very well known. They expect, respected him very highly. And he says, yeah, even Abraham, he was justified by faith. What about David? Another heavy hitter. What about David? Well, he says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Apparently, David talks about the same thing. King David talks about justification by faith. He talks about righteousness apart from works. He says, talks about the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Imputation is the word, meaning righteousness is given by God to the account of the believer. It's imputed to him. So that now that righteousness rests on his account. But there's a second side, because what about my life of sin? What about the things that I've done? Look what David says in 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So there's the positive imputation, the giving to your account of God's righteousness. And that happens by faith. There's also the negative imputation, meaning the removal of your guilt from you, from your column, from your account, and placed upon Christ. Paid for by Him. And so you have imputation going both ways. We call this double imputation. Righteousness credited to our account. And that's what, that's what he says here in the first part when he talks about righteousness apart from works in verse 6. And then in verse 7 and 8, he's talking about sins not credited. Things that really do belong to you. Remember we talked about the gift language of, of crediting. That Abraham believed God and God credited, he gave, he put into his account that righteousness. We have the same crediting language, only this time it's something we really do have in our account, our sin. And what does God do with it? He doesn't credit it to us. He removes it. And He credit, credits it to another so that He gives it to Christ. Christ pays that penalty for us. And so we have righteousness apart from works and we have our sins not credited to us. And so 
Paul is fleshing out here, making very clear to the Jewish reader that you're, perhaps the two greatest heroes of, of the Old Testament, Abraham and David, were both justified by faith. Now you may have heard that salvation was different in the Old Testament, that there was justification as a New Testament concept or something along those lines. And Paul would argue against you and he would say, no, from Abraham, our forefather, justification has been by faith. From the beginning to the end, we are declared righteous before God by faith in Him, by faith in His promises. And so we see the unity of salvation from beginning to end. And where this strikes us is that that's, the, that's salvation now. That's how we can be made right before God right now. And it's always been that way. I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about the righteousness of Christ, His obedience, His obeying the law perfectly, always walking with the Father perfectly, and having that righteousness, His righteousness, put into my account is glorious. Because I don't have that of my own to offer. I can't contribute that. I can't contribute perfect righteousness. But it's been credited to my account by faith in Christ. And those things that I've done, the sin of my life, which has been great and would be soul-crushing and would be deal-breaking, by the way, if it were still credited to my account, that would be the end of me. And that would be the end of you. There would be no peace with God with your own sin hanging over your head. But instead, it is not credited to your account. It is taken from your account and it is applied to the account of Christ. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So this is the gospel. This is what we rejoice in. This is the joy of the Christian. This is the joy of the, this is what gets me up in the morning. This is glorious, glorious good news, and we love to sing about it. We love to praise God for it, and, and I love to remind you about it, and I love to remind myself about it, and we need to know about this grace that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, our words are inadequate to, 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 to say thank you adequately for righteousness applied to our account by faith in Christ. And so we will spend eternity giving you thanks and praise for this righteousness of Christ that's been credited to our account by faith in Christ. We will spend forever doing that. Father, I pray that you'd give us a head start now. I pray that you would help us, even as we go out from here, even in our conversation after church and, and uh, throughout the week, may, may our thoughts return again and again and again and again to this fact that we get to have peace with God because of this justification that we have in Christ. Father, I, I rejoice in that. May we be those who bear that good news to other people. May we encourage Christians who have lost sight of that or Christians who are tempted to uh, trust in their own accomplishment and their own faithfulness or, or they, they realize they have no faithfulness and they're dejected and down and they can't see how they could ever have peace with God. May we encourage them with this gospel message. May we bear that to them. And for the unbelieving world around us, I pray that you would make us fruitful 
bearers of that message to them. Fruitful ministers of that gospel that we would see people come to know you, that you indeed would credit that righteousness of Christ to their account by faith. So, Father, we are a grateful people, and I pray that you'd forgive us where we need to be far more grateful. We rejoice and we thank you and we praise you. So bless us as we go forth, and may we keep these things in mind, and may we remember what we've heard today, and remember this passage, and remember this doctrine, remember these truths. When we think about Abraham, when we think about David in the Old Testament, may we rejoice in your faithfulness to redeem sinners like them and like me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.